Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us at the LSE for this online event, Good Girls and an Ordinary Killing, Al Pasha in conversation with Sonia Falero. In tonight's event, Al Pasha will be speaking with author Sonia Falero about her new book, Good Girls and Ordinary Killing. My name is Dr. Amina Ishkanian, and I am Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program and Associate Professor in Social Policy at the LSE. I also co-convene the Politics of Inequality theme at the International Inequalities Institute together with Ellen Helsper. I'm delighted to welcome our two speakers, Alpa and Sonia. Alpa Shaw is Associate Professor in Anthropology and the convener of the research theme, Global Economies of Care, based at the International Inequalities Institute. She is the author of numerous articles and her most recent book is the award-winning Night March Among India's Revolutionary Guerrillas. Sonia Falero is a journalist and writer. She is the author of Beautiful Thing, Inside the Secret World of Bombay's Dance Bars, which was book of the year for The Guardian, Observer, Sunday Times, The Economist, and Time Out. The book that we'll be discussing this evening, Good Girls and Ordinary Killing, is a deep investigation into the death of two low-cost teenage girls. In the book, Falero examines the coming of age, the failures of care, and the violence of caste, honor, and shame in contemporary India. Examining the circumstances and responses to the deaths of Padma and Lali in the tiny village of Katra Sadat Ganj in Uttar Pradesh, Falero discusses how the investigation into their deaths not only imploded everything that their small community held to be true, but also instigated a national conversation about sex, honor, and violence. In examining the deaths of Padma and Lali, Valero poses the important question, what is the human cost of shame? Now, without further delay, I will hand over to our speakers, who will be speaking together for about an hour, after which we will have time for questions from the audience. Alpa, over to you. Thank you so, so much, uh, Amin. Um, Sonia, uh, welcome to the International Inequalities Institute. Uh, thank you so much for your really beautifully told account of the injustices, entrapments, and inequalities faced by so many women in contemporary era in India. And it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for coming. I've been, I've been really waiting to dive into the good girls and ordinary killing with you. I mean, there's just so much I want to talk to you about, um, you know, like how you did this research so deep and insightful, what it reveals about so many issues, inequalities, the dark side of care, the reflections on caste, class, gender inequalities, the total failure of the legal system and the police. And also I want to talk to you about, you know, how you chose to write this story and, and, and the question of maybe the bigger question of where we situate your, this book in this moment of history. But let's um, slowly unfold. Uh, let's start, maybe let's start at the very beginning, the beginning of your journey. In fact, you reveal that beginning really only um, at the end of the book, book right, in the author's, in the author's note. 
And in the winter of 2012, you know, all over the world, people were following this terrible, ghastly story of the Delhi bus rape victim, right? One evening, this 23-year-old physiotherapy um, intern she was, right, as a student, um, watching The Life of Pi, finished watching the film, boarded a bus with a friend in a South Delhi neighborhood, and then on the bus, which she thought, you know, she... She was, you know, she was beaten, she was tortured, she was gang raped by six men, which included the driver, and they left her in such an awful state that 11 days later she died in a hospital in Singapore. And it, this, this story, like, really caught the imagination of the world, and there were widespread public protests, you know, in Delhi and in many places. And I remember at the time, Dalit activists were saying, you know, um, that at least 10 Dalit women, you know, previously untouchable groups, you know, uh, are raped every day in India, but no one bats an eyelid. Yet this one student, you know, she caught the world's attention. I mean, perhaps, you know, because she represented all these hopes for India, the dreams of social mobility. She was a porter's daughter, from a poor family in Uttar Pradesh aspiring to work in the medical field, like, you know, mm-hmm. every Indian family wants their daughters mm-hmm. to be um, uh, to be aspiring to work in the medical field, and perhaps because it was in the heart of the city. Anyway, whatever the case, after this Delhi rape incident, you two were outraged, right? And you had questions. Who were all these men carrying out these rapes? Why wasn't anyone stopping them? So as you explain it, you decided to write a book on rape in India. What happened next? Tell us. <laughs> Alpa, thank you so much for having me here. It's so great to have this conversation with you. Um, the last time we chatted was actually about your book. So it's fun to see the tables turned. Um, I grew up in Delhi and, uh, you know, I, I grew up knowing that I was vulnerable. I grew up knowing that I had to protect myself. And I grew up knowing that there were there was danger all around me, but what these dangers were, how they might play out um, against me on, on my body, were not conversations that were had um, 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 amongst you know the, the people that I was with. And uh, in my twenties, when I started working, I, I got a job at a, a news magazine in Delhi. Uh, a colleague told me, you know, if you're going to be taking the bus, you should carry a knife with you. And that way, if somebody touches you, you can just poke the knife in them, you know. And she said it in such a casual way, as though it's perfectly normal to carry weapons with the intention of stabbing somebody and, and in, in, in anticipation that you will be assaulted. You know, it violence against women had been so normalized in Delhi, uh, a city that was considered modern, that was considered, uh, you know, relatively safe, I think, compared to many other places in India. And I, I use the word um, a relative, you know, with a sort of a heavy, uh, heavy line under it. And, you know, be, but the con- we never had conversations. And so what, what the Delhi bus rape did for women in India is that, it, is, is that it broke the silence. And you're absolutely right in saying that, you know, there, 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 there was plenty of violence against women uh, long before this young woman was abducted, tortured, raped, and, and eventually killed. 
but because of the particular circumstances uh, of her life and death, her story became everybody's story for, for, for better or worse, but it did break the silence. And after that, uh, as though to compensate for the fact that we had never talked about sexual violence, uh, we were talking about sexual violence all the time. It was really a subject that you could not get away from. And one of the things that happened was that the media uh, started covering sexual assault. It was in the papers all the time. And you started to feel as though the only thing that is happening in India right now is that women are being assaulted. So even though it was, you know, I knew, we knew that this was, this was simply a fact. Uh, it, it was simply a, a, um, a problem that was finally being highlighted. It felt like there were no other problems in India. And so what I was trying to understand was, if we know this is such a major issue, not just because of the Delhi bus rate, but because of our own personal experience and because of the statistics, why, why are we not able to, to put an end to it? Who are these men committing all these crimes? And why are we not able to stop them? So basically, where in this system um, is, 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 is the failure taking place? And that is the kind of book that I wanted to write. And, you know, thinking about it and trying to understand how I would frame this narrative, uh, I suddenly reached the summer of 2014. I was sitting in, I was in London at the time, scrolling through Twitter, um, as one does. And I came across this absolutely heart-stopping picture of two children hanging from a tree. And somebody had put that picture out there thinking it was okay. And the justification for publishing that picture was that, you know what, uh, Indians need to wake up. And perhaps when they see this picture of children in a tree, they will finally be shocked into responding. And the story, the alleged story behind that picture was that the two children, um, who I call Padman Lali because I can't legally name them, who were 16 and 14 at the time of their death, were abducted raped and then hanged by upper caste men in a show of power and strength. And that picture is what set me off in, 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 in down this road of writing The Good Girls. Yeah, yeah thanks, um, Sonia. You know, you, you, you know, you said, you know, you, you thought it's going to be a fairly straightforward book to write, right? Because this, the investigation by the time you went there had already taken place. But in fact, you, you know, started digging deep down into what happened and trying to get to the bottom of it. And then, you know, it was next four, four years had passed. And I, I, I will obviously come back to what transpired. But can you tell us something about, um, you know, what you did? You, you boarded the plane to Delhi. Uh, uh, what happened? Can you tell us something about, you know, the research that you did? How did you go about, you know, reconstructing the story of the girls who you call Padma and Lali? Um, what, you know, what did you do? You know, so initially, Alpa, it was this book about rape, right? And I, like I said, I didn't know what shape the narrative would take. But I thought the story of uh, the children, Padma and Lali, could be the centerpiece of the book as a way to talk about the larger themes. But the girl's story was never going to be the book. 
So um, my initial plan was, you know, I'm going to board a flight to Delhi and, uh, and, and go to Katra Sabhaganj, which is the village where the children had lived and where they died and spend a couple of weeks there and, you know, get that part of the book done with and then then move on so that's that's pretty much what happened you know I flew down to Delhi I got a car um it's about six hours drive um from Delhi to Uttar Pradesh uh this enormous absolutely enormous state um Katra Sadhuganj is located in Badayu district in western Uttar Pradesh so I got a hotel in Badayu and as soon as I arrived, I drove down to Katra. It was another two and a half hours. It was nightfall by the time I arrived. And I had already spoken with um, the parents of Padma and Lali, their first cousins. And uh, I, I mean, Padma and Lali were first cousins. And they lived in a joint family in a single house. So I had spoken to the parents and I had made, uh, you know, made plans to meet them. And I had this great initial conversation with them that evening. And then I came back. And then I came back. And uh, I wasn't really comfortable with the material that I was getting. You know, I mean, on the one hand, I I, I, I was hearing a story that I had already read, um, you know, which makes perfect sense, right? Because the, the families of the children had been talking to reporters for a year by the time I arrived in, in 2015. And so they had said everything that they had wanted to say. Um, and I didn't know them well enough at that point to get them to talk to me or give me any more information. So that's the one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was that, you know, I was having these conversations that I felt um, were not entirely sort of like all the pieces in the puzzle were not coming together for me. You know, and I tried to talk to other members of the family, tried to talk to, spoke to relatives and friends. And there was something missing. Um, There's some sort of awkwardness in the air, maybe a silence in the air, just a discomfort, which again makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm just a stranger showing up in the village, asking the same sorts of questions at a time that is extremely traumatic. You know, the family has lost children. Um, they, they, they're obviously in deep pain, deeply traumatized, and experiencing a, a great deal of suffering. So. I, you know, I, I had to keep that in mind and accept that, but also recognize that I wasn't getting the full story. And knowing that uh, at the end of the week, I had to make a choice about, you know, whether I was satisfied with this material, whether I was confident about using this material as a foundation of a book, or if I wasn't, and I wasn't. And I wrestled with whether, you know, should I just... In, you know, look at another uh, look at another case. There's uh, unfortunately no dearth of cases to examine. But I also realized that, and, and, and you would know this, Alpa, you know, there is, there's just always such a fog around investigations, even seemingly straightforward investigations. And this wasn't straightforward at all. Um, but there's always such a fog around investigations just because of the manner in which they're conducted. You know, there isn't, even when somebody, when the people involved aren't trying to be shady, it appears that way simply because of how the police are forced to or, or, or don't know any better and uh, because of how the work is done. So um, 
I thought, do I stay or do I move on? And then I just decided, you know what, why don't I stick around and see what I learn? And that trip became the first of many that I took over the next four years. And then eventually, you know, I realized that the story of the children is all that we need to know to understand why violence against women happens in India. You don't actually need to know anything more. You don't even need the statistics because it's all there in their experience of life and in how they died. Mm, yeah, thank you, Sonia. You know, it's so, I mean, the rich, the search is so deep and so rich. You know, you, you, you conducted like more than 100 interviews. You know, you tried to uncover so many sides of the story from the family to the police politicians you know the sweeper who conducted the post-mortem you know um and 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 you know it, it's like it's so powerful because it goes way beyond those facts and figures of hangings and murders and rapes and sexual violence against women to reveal a whole set of wider issues right the psychological the emotional the legal the political the social dimensions of you know what is what is at stake you know it shares so much um in some ways, I thought with what we do as anthropologists, you know, um, that kind of painstaking examination from every possible angle, which takes years drawing in, you know, wide range of perspectives, examining from people's point of view, different people's points of view, seeking to reveal many sides of a story. And, um, you know, one of the things that we always look out for, though, is through such research is the surprise, the things that you never expected to find, you know, um, and I guess, yeah, I wanted to ask you before you tell us, like, you know, what, what the story reveals. I mean, what were the real surprises for you? What, what were the real surprises in this journey uh, for you? Hmm. When you report a story like this, you know, you, you, you expect to meet a lot of the usual characters, you know, the, the, the bumbling cop, the malicious village leader, um, you know, these are all the, the stereotypes, some of which are rooted in, in truth and some of which are not. And what you maybe don't expect to find is a lot of love, a lot of friendship, um, good times, joy, uh, people who are adored. And, uh, you know, a, a whole cast of characters who believe uh, and perhaps did in fact, uh, are correct in saying that they did the best that they could have under the circumstances, that this was all they could do. This is what they knew to do. Uh, they had no other way to respond. You know, um, I didn't find a lot of people in the course of this investigation who went out of their way to genuinely cause harm. Most people felt, well, this is my duty. This is what I'm doing out of love. This is what I'm doing to protect. This is what I'm doing for honor. This is what my boss would have liked. This is how I've always done it. And, you know, they weren't making these, 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 these comments simply to justify their behavior. This, this came from a place of belief. So what we see is, you know, is, is a pattern of behavior that is the result of, of, of people's lived experiences. This is culture. You know, this is politics. This is family life. In India, and everybody, virtually everybody, was doing what they thought was the right thing. But when it all came together, 
it just ended up becoming a whole bunch of terrible decisions that led you know the children to go down this this absolutely devastating downward spiral in a way that almost made their death inevitable you know because of all these many 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 decisions that were made on their behalf by people who thought they knew the best so expecting to find malice and anger and and, and hate because you know uh, uh being given to understand that this was a crime about caste um i didn't really find that and that was a surprise for me yeah and that really really comes across you know in 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 the book also in the way you write you know which is that you don't pass judgment on on anyone on anything um and um yeah maybe we'll come back to that you know i i let let's get to some of the kernels of what you wanted to draw out i mean your book is so powerful right it's such a beautiful piece of work and i think there's so so much scope for us in academia to learn from storytelling approaches you know that you use and you using basically the structure of it's almost like a crime crime narrative and and mm-hmm. and you know the, the idea very much of showing not telling and but you know let's turn to what you wanted to tell i mean what are the broader points that you really wanted to get across um from from this story i mean i'm asking you this you know partly because we're in this academic context and you know one of the problems we face in using such storytelling techniques is that our other academics are often looking for the passages that are you know really citable that make that kind of broader point and the wider points are making um being spelled out um they they're looking to be told you know and your book uh t- actually tells so many things but i wanted to ask you what 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 are the what are the wider points that you really wish to get across well you know one of the things that parents would identify with um especially parents with young kids is is the you know is is how we talk to children you know when from the time they're very little we give them a sense of self right we tell them who they are and we explain very early on what their rights are right so for example you would tell a child um this is your body this body belongs to you no one should touch it you know okay you know if if mommy's changing your diaper or daddy's changing your diaper sure but this is yours this idea of self of belonging of who you are of you as an individual of you as a person having rights having opinions um and having a voice is something that many parents teach their children from a very young age and and go out of their way to do so and so it comes as you know a surprise but just uh, i think a cause for quite profound sorrow to see that in many parts of the world girls are brought up not being told that they belong to themselves that they have power over themselves that they have rights that they have opinions and that they have a voice and that they matter and that's something that came across really strongly for me when i went to katra sadatganj you know it's 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 full of kids it's a happy village full of happy kids who go to um a private school near the mango orchard their parents choose to put them in that private school even though they have access 
to a free government school. And they make that choice because they want their kids to be educated, to learn English and math and science. Um, but at the same time, perhaps because of their own life experiences, perhaps because the government has failed in how to convey these, these ideas, uh, or perhaps because of other things, they are not telling their children that they are individuals who matter. Mm-hmm. And so kids grow up thinking that they don't matter and that they don't have choices. And that is so very stifling for them, you know? And all they want to do is to experience a little bit of freedom. And that's what we saw with Padman Lali. There were teenage girls who got their hands on a mobile phone. They liked to text and they liked to talk on the phone. And they liked just enjoying those little moments that they had together, walking to the mango orchard, grazing their sheep, gossiping, laughing, writing poems, you know, surreptitiously applying makeup. But every time they tried to do something that gave them joy, that allowed them to express who they were, that that made it clear that they were individuals, that this is Padma and this is Lali, and not, you know, Shakya family, they faced pushback. And you can imagine what that pushback does, not just to an individual, the frustration it causes, the sadness it causes, perhaps the anger it causes. But what, what, what is the outcome when that is done, when you are suppressing not merely just one or two people, but an entire generation of women? Mm-hmm. So that is the, the larger issue in India, is that women are still not being allowed to feel like they are individuals with you know, with with power over themselves and over their choices, and you know, obviously, in the larger the what we what we see is that your your women are not educated. There are less women in the workforces. Tiny thirty percent or so uh, workforce participation of women in India, and the entire country as a whole is held back. So that really, to me, is you know the the crux of of, of the matter. Mm, it's so interesting because in leading one of this global economies of care theme here at the III, um, to me, like one of the final, con- you know, one of the conclusions of your book is really about this dark side of care, you know, the kind of protection, the, the dark side of interdependency, you know, that many feminists are actually calling attention to right now here in the UK because it, it's almost like it, it, it's the problem is that in, that that uh, interdependency. The problem is that you know the 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 mobile phone, as you so nicely put it, you know, is actually the maybe the only key to a door that led outside the village. You know, via, via calls and WhatsApp messaging tools, and um and yeah, you you know, your one of the wonderful conclusions of your book is like you know the first challenge is. Is you think that it you think this is a a case about caste and uh, you know this upper the higher caste um, um, boy who has done these deeds to these lower caste girls who cast who are lower lower than than him, yeah. um, but in fact you know what you show unpeeling all of these layers is that you know the first challenge is actually your own household right surviving your own home. And can you tell us a little bit more about this, you know, how it evolves and how it evolves in, 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 
in, in how this kind of conclusion evolves to you. Um, you know, it, it's so you think that actually somebody did the, the crime, but in fact, it could have been all of these other people. Can you tell us something more about how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. But Alpa, being at home and doing this, I, I'm going to have to excuse myself because my dog is barking. So I'm sorry, this is very, very much a pandemic Zoom related issue, but I'm going to be with you in one minute. So sorry about this. I've got an open window with cars rushing past. Hang on. <laughs> so sorry. Here we go. Cool. <laughs> so um, your question was, how did I come to the conclusion of what had happened? Yeah, that, that is the first challenge, you know, is your household. That's, you know, you have this very powerful line at the end that actually first challenge is really surviving your own household. And, and tell us about how you would reach that conclusion, you know, these kind of layers that you were peeling away to tell your story. Well, you know, the, the, the children were very much loved. And I constantly feel the need to stress this because, uh, you know, we are, there is still the sense that, um, you know, this is uh, an honor killing in, in, in some way. Um, it isn't. But you have to understand that the, the choices that people make um, don't necessarily come from a place of anger or malice or anything deeper than that. Often people are just trying to make the best of the situation that they are in. Now, the children were loved by their family. They were valued members of their community, but they were under enormous pressure to live their lives in ways that perhaps they wouldn't have chosen to. And because they were teenagers, um, they were constantly in, you know, which is natural. I, I don't think there are any teenagers who aren't constantly in conflict with their parents, but there was a constant conflict. But because of the particular situation of their environment, the pushback was much more severe than it would have been in other circumstances. So a lot of what the kids were doing was simply trying to protect themselves, was simply trying to live uh, a normal life. And what the parents were trying to do for them was to say, you know, whatever life you want to live is, is not possible because you're living, you're part of a family, you're part of a village, you're part of a community, and there are rules and you have to follow those rules of life. Because if you don't, you're not the only ones who are going to get punished. We are all going to have to suffer the consequences. So there is this, on the, on the shoulders of children is placed the burden of an entire community. And that's why life becomes so very, very hard, particularly for girls from a very young age. Mm, yeah. I, I, I want to turn a little bit to um, some of the kind of caste class dimensions of this story. And there's a number of issues really um, to draw out. Um, Specifically, I guess I wanted to ask you, does it matter that Padma and Lali's families were not Dalits? Um, in your book, you know, you cite a series of similar crimes against Dalits. For example, there was that four Dalit women who were raped and dumped at a railway station in Haryana. 
police arresting an upper caste man, but then, you know, the upper caste all descend on the Dalits back in the village and made them flee. Um, uh, and I wondered what your reflections were on researching this case in relation to a whole range of other cases that are also going on in, in Uttar Pradesh and whether there were dif wider differences you encountered between this case and those cases involving Dalits. The reason why I'm asking you this question uh, in, is in part because of the research of a wonderful student we have here at the LSE International Inequalities Institute called Sandhya Fuchs, who just got her PhD in anthropology and who in fact reviewed your book for the LSE Review of Books. And Sandhya's work focused on similar crimes um, in, in Rajasthan, but against Dalits. Okay. And they were just as ghastly. And there were so, there are actually so many parallels. I'd love you guys to meet one day um, between the complexity of the, of the stories you reveal and what her work also shows. But one thing that her work really highlights is the ways in which the Prevention of Atrocities Act of 1989, which was, you know, made for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes of Dalits and Adivasis specifically, was used by Dalit activists as part of a legal recourse for victims victims against such crimes. So it asked, so it actually made me wonder, you know, whether even though the Shakyas were slightly higher on the caste hierarchy than Dalits, maybe they're actually in a worse off position than that is because they had no recourse to any such legal protection. Hmm. So I'm just wondering whether you had any thoughts on this. I mean, I, behind this is, I guess, the larger question of whether affirmative action policies and, you know, targeted, special targeted laws make any difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the reason it mattered in this particular case, and it wasn't the I, I didn't mention it in an effort to say that you know they were better off or worse off or they had more or less protections, as yeah. you know, I mentioned it in a very particular context, which is that the 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 family was um, inundated with media attention uh because they refused to allow the police to take down the bodies of the children that was a smart uh, and a calculated move which was intended to draw attention uh and intended to allow for a, an actual investigation as opposed to what generally tends to happen which is that you know people die in suspicious circumstances in in certain places in india uttar pradesh is a good example the police claim to investigate the case but actually you know the bodies are taken down there is some sort of post-mortem and, and the matter is considered closed so nobody at, knows what has happened and the families never get closure so the idea was to put the bodies up there attract the media attract politicians and to demand justice and in that they succeeded in fact there were so many journalists flooding uh, the the fields and the village that women couldn't use the fields um you know they had to dig holes in the in their in their courtyards to use uh to 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 squat and uh they lost their sense their the little privacy that they had uh, it became a quite an uncomfortable situation but the media was so desperate to to have breaking news to pro to provide constantly updating breaking news uh for you know for the trps for the numbers mm -hmm. that they started reporting quote unquote um some things that that were not based in fact so the fact is that you know the family was not dalit 
But somehow that story made its way into the headlines. It embedded itself in the public memory. And what it did was not only was it, you know, misinformation, number one, which should have been corrected, but number two, it 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 affected how the the alleged perpetrators were treated mm-hmm. you know so in a way there are two groups of victims here you have the real victims who died and you have the people who were accused of the crime without any evidence and the fact that the victims were supposedly dalit um changed how the public looked upon the supposed perpetrator. So it affected both groups. On one hand, it attracted more sympathy. On the other, it attracted more anger and derision and calls for a tougher sentence, including hanging, all before an investigation had been conducted. So this was a comment on the actions of the media that on one hand, you know, want to do the right thing by drawing attention to sexual violence, and on the other, are being incredibly competitive with everybody else, and in their hurry to to present breaking news are not really putting out facts. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that was really striking, you know, is that the, the people, the families, the people in the village, you know, had to leave these bodies up, right, for was, was it 12 hours or, or, or yeah. more? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the point was that, you know, you, they knew that that they have so few weapons to make this event, the story, the ghastliness of what has happened matter. Um, and, and so, yeah, they had to resort to those bodies being up there for 12 hours in order to, you know, draw attention to them. It was like, it was like one of their kind of, you know, little kind of small weapons of resistance in a way. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I, I did, you know, I did wonder thinking about Sandhya's work and in her case, what, what happens is, you know, you don't kind of need that in a way because there are all these Dalit activists who arrive on the scene and, they will take the, the case forward. So, you know, that there aren't such, you know, you, the pe- people in the village aren't left um, uh, to have to take to such such measures. Anyways, it was just a kind of hypothesis that occurred. Probably there's nothing to it. But there's another part of the story which I wanted to explore with you. I don't know if you had any thoughts about because we often um, say, you know, that a lot of research like showing that in Dalit households, households, especially those that are not upwardly mobile, don't have the same concerns of sexual propriety as the higher caste, uh, as those up higher up the caste hierarchy or the class hierarchy. You know, Dalit women work in the fields of home others hold the strings of the purse are not as policed by their own families in the same way mm-hmm. as those are up the caste hierarchy. I can definitely say this is the case for Adivasis in the areas where I yeah. worked, you know, it's mm-hmm. much more, much more, you can't imagine, you know, such ghastly hap- cases, many ghastly cases happen against Adivasi women's, but not of the kind of nature which involves such how intra-household um, uh propriety, issues of sexual propriety. So I wonder to what extent, you know, the story you're telling was is also one about the values of caste and aspiring upward mobility, which, are, which comes with the greater patrolling of women, you know, so there is this kind of it's not just a universal story of Indian women that there, there, there could be a different story actually lower down the caste hierarchy and lower down, um, lower down the class hierarchy too. I, I, yeah, I just wondered whether you had had any thoughts about that. 
Well, I mean, of course, the the family wants um, wants to move forward. It, you know, it wants the Shakya family wants to be modern. The Shakya family, like like anybody else, like any other family in modern India, they want better for their children than they themselves have. So, for example, Padma and Lali's parents can't read or write, but you know, as I mentioned earlier, they sent their children, all their girls included, to private schools. The girls' mothers don't know how to use phones, but the girls themselves had access to several phones. And the parents didn't have any problem with problems with them using the phones to text and to call. And although later on, you know, because they were concerned by what people were saying, they claimed that their children were not allowed to go out of the house um, without adult supervision. They were always out of the house, uh, unsupervised. And that's perfectly fine. You know, so they, they were much more modern than their parents themselves had been, uh, simply perhaps because they they felt this was what it means to grow up in in India at this time. They wanted better. They wanted more for their children. But I think that, you know, modern things and even some modern ideas don't necessarily translate into huge advances mm. for girls in India because structural changes are still very slow in coming. So, you know, for example, one reason why, a, a legitimate excuse actually, why a lot of parents do not send their girls for education beyond the eighth grade when it isn't free uh, is because there are no high schools close by. You know, there isn't a high school in every village or within walking distance. And parents are afraid of what will happen to their girls if they are allowed to walk alone to to school. And so they simply ask their children, make their children drop out. So perhaps if we built more schools, perhaps if we improve the quality of education, perhaps if we gave some, uh, you know, if we were able to offer job security, parents would be able to understand why it makes sense to educate their girls. Mm -hmm. And that would be one enormous step forward. So I think there are a lot of places where, you know, you may have the ideas, but you don't have the structure in place to make those ideas, to make those wishes and dreams come true. And so you are held back. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what to what extent do you think that, you know, this case would have unfolded differently for a person with more privileges? Um you know, I mean, to, to what extent is this a story about really what happens at the bottom of the class hierarchy? Um, you know, that's what I was also, you know, wondering um, when thinking about Padma and Lali's story. I mean, it's it's a slightly tricky one, Alpa, because mm. I don't know if you remember the case of Arushi Talwar that had happened uh, before the, the, the Padma Lali case. She was a young woman, a 14-year-old, um, teenager uh, living in Delhi, the the daughter of you know middle class dentists living in a nice area outside Delhi, actually, who was found one morning by her parents with her throat slit, and the investigation that followed, you know, the the lies, the unscientific methods, the highest uh, level of federal investigators concocting evidence. The, the things that politicians said, all ultimately ending up with the parents themselves being wrongfully accused of killing their child and ending up in jail for several years. 
You know, and I mean, these parents represented the highest levels of Indian society. I mean, upper middle class people. And that is what happened to them. So it's very hard to say, you know, when you compare the two cases of Arushi, um, Arushi was 14, Lali was also 14. I mean, I would be tempted to say that Padma and Lali's case was better investigated than that of um, than, than that of Arushi. You know, they both received a lot of attention, but um, that doesn't mean that 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 the outcomes were better for for either of them. Yeah, yeah. And what I loved about your book, you know, as much as it's a story about class and caste and honor and shame and gender, and it's also a story about the police and the legal system and, you know, the real failures of the state and showing how inefficient the police investigative capacity is, a ghastly situation in which post-mortems, you know, that's just so, so powerful, the whole section on post-mortems and how they're conducted with kitchen knives and by sweepers rather than professionals. And, you know, this GP was not even trained to do it, having to do it. And, um, and you're showing us how people try to settle matters and bury them and um, rather than hold perpetrators to account. But as you know, as I said before, you know, what was really wonderful about the way in which you recounted this is all of these failures is that you just don't pass judgment on anyone, you know, uh, except maybe the current prime minister mm-hmm. um, you know you, you don't even pass judgment against the police officers who are clearly so inept and uh, I guess I wanted to understand this like better from you I mean can you say something about how you came to those decisions you know wh- where then do you see you know the wider responsibilities for change it's simply how I choose to write you know um, I feel that writing that is Seeved of personal emotion is much more powerful, and it's because then it's just the facts. You know, uh, you can't argue with facts. You can argue with an author's thoughts, an author's feelings, and an author's emotion. But facts are what they are, and uh, I always write like that. Uh, I I also think that you know, there's nothing that I can add. You know. I, you have, uh, as, as you point out, you're talking about the postmortem conducted by this m- man that I interviewed, Lala Ram. Lala Ram is a lovely man, you know. I've met him many times and he's such a nice guy. And when I read the CBI, the, the Federal Investigation Report, describing Lala Ram as essentially using a butcher's knife, I thought, well, you know, that's unbelievable. Um, and so I asked Lala Ram when I was in Badayu, can I watch you? I took permission from the hospital uh, to watch him conduct a postmortem. And he did. He invited me then. Uh, you know, he, he called me up and he said, look, there's this young man. He's been pulled under the wheels of his own tractor. The police are coming over with the body. You wanted to watch a postmortem, so why don't you come over? And I went to watch him. And there he was in his undershirt, barefoot, with a body in the backyard of the postmortem house because the postmortem house doesn't have electricity. It's filthy. Everything is broken. It looks like a tiny abandoned warehouse. And in that incredible heat, you know, Uttar Pradesh summers are just boiling, festering. And there he was outside working on the body under um, a, a tree with flies and, and his butcher's knives. And 
you know, he is doing what he knows. He is doing what he's taught. He's doing what the hospital administration has said is his job. So you can't blame Lala Ram. You know, this is, I mean, and I remember standing there thinking, if I get into an accident on one of these dreadful highways, uh, you know, I'm going to be on the stable and Lala Ram is going to be conducting my postmortem. It's not that Lala Ram conducted the postmortems of the very poor. He conducted everybody's postmortems because this was the biggest public hospital in the district. So we we, we look to 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 place, understandably, because of the outcome and the the tragic outcome of 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 our collective actions, we are always looking to place blame. But the fact is that there is no single individual to blame. You know, in a way, it is nobody and it is everybody. And I don't need to say that to you. It is simply there. So it is a, a conscious decision that I take in how I write. That's that's one thing. But I think it also makes a larger point, which is it shows you by people's actions where everything is going wrong. So, you know, it starts with the family and then you see political intervention you know, the polit- politicians going into the mango orchard, th- looking at people, but not seeing people, seeing votes. And then you see the police who are terrified of the politicians and they just want to close the matter. And then you see the doctors who don't want to touch a body because they think it's impure. And so at every step of the way, you know, the children or in this case and victims in general are being let down. And that is simply how it is. And And every part of the system, it's like, every part of the system is broken. You know, it's not like, okay, this is a car and we've got a flat tire. No, every part of the car is damaged and you either get yourself a new car or you spend all your time just fixing this one. But the way it is, it's not working. Mm, Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, um, you you talked a little bit about your writing and, and, you know, leaving yourself out of of the text and... um, um, I, I, yeah, I, I was really interested to know more about your inspirations, you know, um, in writing, which, which books did you find a, an inspiration for thinking about your, thinking about your, your writing here? It really, I mean, it reminded me a lot of Catherine Boo's um, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, you know, who similarly spent four years or so researching, you know, this Mumbai slum, which is at the center of behind the beautiful forever. And she's also like not present in the text, but, you know, at the end, in an author's note, you find out how she did the research. And, and, yeah, I, I was really interested to know, you know, what, where, what you're charting, you know, new ground, especially in writing on India and, you know, this deep immersive, um, Report, reporting, um, ju- you know, deep investigative journalism, and and then the way you write. I mean, it's, I, I yeah, would we'll just would love to hear a little bit more about your inspirations. So I, um, I do read a lot of narrative nonfiction because I am very interested in structure. I think that's the most, well, the second most important aspect of writing a book of nonfiction, right? So the first is you do all these years of reporting as you would know, Alpa, because you did it with Night March and then you have this incredible amount of material and then you need to figure out how to structure it. Mm -hmm. And the challenge with 
a book like this, or I think books in general about the subjects that we write about, is how do you continue to engage your readers? Because these are extremely, you know, these these are these are painful stories, you know, and and perhaps somebody would say, well, this is a difficult story, and given the circumstances that we that we always seem to be living in. Uh, not everybody wants to engage with something like this, which is completely understandable. But as an author is the challenge that I need to overcome. How do I make it compelling enough for you without changing the actual narrative, without changing, you know, anything? Um, and that actually comes from just pacing the book. So the chapters in the book, for example, they're very short it's a big book, but the chapters are very, very short. And there's a lot of momentum that continues to push readers to our, towards the very end. And although I think there's a lot of information, I've tried to offer it in a way that doesn't, you know, f- constantly feel like a sort of a, I don't know, like an information dump, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I do want to make sure that people really get a quite a deep sense of what it's like being a young woman in India, you know, it's, it's not, I don't want you to, I don't, I didn't want to offer a superficial look at what these children had to go through. I wanted people to really understand who they were. So I think um, I spent a lot of time reading books that might help me understand narrative. I read novels because, you know, language matters. And, uh, I write very, very simply. My sentences, like my chapters, are very short. They're very clean. And it's something that I focus on quite a lot. But again, it's because the material does not require any embellishment, right? I mean, it's all, it's really all there. I don't have to do anything to it. I just have to make sure that I I don't overwhelm you and that I, I am, I'm, I'm able to convey the same sense of urgency to readers and the same desire to know what happened that I myself felt. So um, I, I do read a lot, but I, I also spend a lot of time just looking at my own work. Tell us, tell us, um, um, Sonia, about give us give us two or three books that have inspired you. It would be it would be great to know. Um, and you, you're very successful at all of those things that you you, you know you said like the pace, keeping the reader with you, making them feel not, you know, not being thrown a whole load of information. It's just so successful. It's like, it's really, you just read it over the course of, you know, you just sit down and read it over the course of a night. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. So um, uh, I love Adrian Nicole LeBlanc's Random Family, which is, I don't know if you've read it, Alpa, but it's a book uh, that explores um, poverty in the Bronx and Adrian spent about a decade uh, reporting it. So that is, you know, again, a very deep look at how a community works and, and about the challenges that it has to overcome. But again, told through the story of, you know, one small group of individuals. Mm-hmm. And um, this last summer, I think I, I spent pretty much every day reading everything by Ved Mehta because I love a lot of his uh, books about India. I love his, um, I love his autobiographies. And again, he's, he's, you know, he, he speaks in a, a very clear voice, but there's a lot of beauty in his descriptions. 
and he's able to capture moods and situations really well. So um, yeah, these are these are two writers that I admire. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Um, I have maybe a couple more questions for you before we open up for for questions. Um, you know, often when um, one conducts such deep, very immersive research over years, one finds that one changes too in that process, right? One finds that one is transformed. You know, you expect you 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 transformed within you, um, and and I wanted to ask you about that, like this story and investigating it and researching it and in what and thinking about it afterwards and what ways did it did it transform you what in what ways did it transform you um i i have to uh honestly say to you that you know after my previous book beautiful thing which i spent five years on that was an investigation into bombay's dance bars i chose to keep a distance uh, between myself and the people that I was writing about. Um, you know, uh, the, the last book was also an immersive experience, but it was very difficult for me to process. Um, it stayed with me for very long. Uh, I think that perhaps it did more harm than good uh, to me because of the experiences that I had, the things that I saw, uh, the story that I ended up telling. Uh, I felt that I couldn't go through that again. And um, I felt that it wouldn't benefit me. It wouldn't benefit my subjects. Uh, it just wouldn't benefit. It, it, it wouldn't have any benefits in the long run because perhaps I might, would end up being unable to write. So I tried with the good girls to maintain distance. And, you know, it, it had an impact. Um, it was extremely difficult. It was, you know, I, physically it was challenging. I reported part of it when I was pregnant. It was, you know, there is, there are, there are changes that you experience, but um, it's just something that I have tried to keep at a distance. Uh, I felt it was the best for me. Yeah, thanks, Sonia, for for being so honest and open about that. I I must plug the beautiful thing uh, to our listeners. It is an extraordinary, amazing, beautiful book. That's when I discovered you, and I thought, wow, you know, who is this Sonia Falera? Um, okay, um, my my last um, my last question to you. Um, it's you know, I mean, we're in this pandemic. It's such a de devastating time, uh, so full of grief and continues in India in even, you know, more pervasive ways. Um, but at the same time, you know, people are really fed up and we've seen so many hopeful moments that, you know, we can't leave things the way they are. We've seen, you know, climate justice movements, Black Lives Matter movements, yeah. before that Me Too. And you know your your book kind of highlights um, and so, it's so futile, right? Because it's like you can't put put a finger on anything, and everything is a problem in a way. <laughs> but you know, where do you um, place your book in this moment of history? You know, in in, in the making of history, 
um, what would you like to see happen with what it reveals? I mean, where where do you where do you see it? Where do you see your book right now in this in this current moment? You know, it's one of those situations that could go very very bad, or it could improve. Um, India is in a crisis right now. One reason is, of course, the pandemic. Um, the other reason, as you know, Free, a Freedom House report recently told us, is that India is partly free. It is no longer a completely functional democracy. Mm-hmm. So a country that does not have, um, where, where people are not free, um, in a situation where people are not free, uh, co- communities that are already vulnerable, communities that are have always suffered will continue to suffer more. So I think the focus needs to be on, you know, calling out uh, anti-democratic behaviors for continuing to speak out, for people to use their voice to speak truth to power. And I think that has to be the focus because you know if if democracy is sliding then everything else um, is going to go along with it and then the stories that of, of Padman Lali will unfortunately stories like that will continue to increase rather than decrease so I think there is just for India specifically there is one overriding focus which is you know protect democracy Thank you, Sonia. Yeah, of course, as you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and yeah, it's so lovely to, to to chat with you. And I really, it's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on board. I'm going to hand over back to our chair, Amin, who is going to lead the Q and A. So um, yeah, but I'll be I'll be I'll be here too. So um, yeah, really nice, really nice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alpa. This was so great. Thank you for your time. Thank you both. Thank you, Alpa. Thank you, Sonia, for sharing your thoughts. It's been fascinating listening to you. We've got lots of questions. So I'm going to try to start with shorter ones and then um, bring some of them that are asking similar things together. So one from a current LSE student, um, Harshita Takral, LSE LLM student. They ask, why do you associate this killing with love and family values? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, because the, the family of Padmanali believed then and believe now that they did the best that they could for their children and that everything that they were doing to, was to protect them and was in their best interests. So their actions, so to, to be perfectly clear, the family is not involved, directly involved in the death of these children. So number one. Number two, they, they love them, you know? And we have to understand that love and poor decisions can coexist. Loving somebody and unfortunately participating in their oppression can coexist. And this is the definition of, a, a toxic relationship, no doubt, but this is also the definition of a lot of parent and child relationships 
in places like India, where, which are very conservative, where people, where parents feel like, you know, they are answerable to the wider community, and therefore they have to police and monitor the behavior of their children, not just for their children's sake, but for the, the, the honor and the safety of everybody else. Wonderful, thank you. Um, we have a question from Ecuador, from Maca Suarez, who asks, um, how do we come to terms with a vision of individuality that runs counter to many cultural norms around the world? But also, how do we avoid the idea of the ne neoliberal individual that must be self-sufficient? Which has also, they add, dis you know, influenced the dismantling of welfare states. So, so how do we hold those things together? I think that, you know, we've seen what happens when people are not allowed to make independent choices for themselves. So I think that if you belong to a community like that of the Shakyas, you're going to require and you deserve the support of the welfare state. You deserve the free education. You deserve subsidized food grains. You deserve help in building your house, um, in, in getting that free toilet, which is what they finally have now after the death of their children. You deserve reservations in, in, in jobs. And the reason you deserve all those things is because you've been deprived of them for generations. And this is simply setting to rights all the things that have been done um, for a very long time. But at the same time, you know, people also have to be allowed to make their own choices. And that's something that I think needs to be a part of how we educate people, um, how the government speaks to people. So, for example, the language of politicians in India continues to be extremely patriarchal. Speaking of women, for example, as daughters and sisters and wives who, you know, should stay home um, as opposed to human beings in their own right. And so I think there is, there, there has to be a balancing act where people are allowed both things. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is a question from Shalini Grover, an anthropologist who is who works with Alpa on the global economies of care theme, and um, she talks about how you know these cases, rape cases, um, that are capturing the nation in a historical way, but they're also bringing a hyper visibility, um, a new mobilization around rape sometimes across class and the media attention is interesting. Um, it's an interesting moment, which brings to the foreground women's agency and questions of bodies. Um, she's asking, can we see this as an optimistic moment for change or has this also exacerbated fear and curtailed girls, women's everyday movements in India? Sorry, it was a question about the media. So the question is about the hypervisibility. So now there's all of this focus. You know, the rapes are not new, but the focus, the greater focus and mobilization. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is this creating a moment for change or is this simply exacerbating fear and curtailing um, women's and girls' everyday movements? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I would say that it's been 
enormously useful because you, we can't apparently change the, the quality of investigations. We may not be able to improve everything, but we can at least draw attention to the fact that crimes are taking place. We can give them visibility, we can demand accountability, and we've seen that when we do that, change does happen. So it's a huge, you know, it's a huge transformation from, from, from all the decades before when you wouldn't, you would open the papers and you wouldn't read about assault and you almost felt as though you were living in a country where women were perfectly safe and nothing bad ever happened. So it's actually been enormously useful. And I think the case of Padman Lali, although it didn't give the parents what they wanted, um, I think it gave them the, the best outcome under the circumstances. Thanks, Sonia. Um, several people are asking this question of what can be done. Some are asking, you know, is it around education? You know, what are what needs to be done to address this from your perspective? Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that education is a really, really um, it's a really good place to start because, you know, first of all, what it does is that it gives people hope. You know, it gives them the chance to imagine a future. And that's really, really important. I mean, you know, we, we, we tend to look at, at, at life in terms of sort of very concrete things, right? So we look at your, you, you look at a, a, a degree or you look at a job. Um, but actually, so much of what makes life not just bearable, but enjoyable is, is a chance to dream about things, right? And if you, if you don't have that, life can become very, very difficult. And so what giving a child an education does is that it tells them that they are worthy of being educated. And it tells them that this is an opportunity for them and that they can do something with this opportunity and that they have a chance to be something and to live in a way that is different from their parents and, 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 and grandparents if, if they choose to. So it opens up a world. So a child has, feels like they are able to breathe. Uh, and what is happening right now is you have a lot of kids in places like Katra Sadat Ganj, where Padman Lali live, who you can tell feel cloistered. You know, they, they feel like they're being choked because they're not being allowed to do anything. They're allowed to take two steps forward to the mango orchard and then they're pulled back. They're allowed to go to primary school. They're not allowed to go to high school. They're told they can learn how to read and write, but they're told they'll never get jobs. You know, they're told, oh, sure, you can do what you want, but as long as you get married when you're 18 years old. So education is vital not only for the tangible changes that it can introduce into somebody's life, but because of how it can change how you feel about yourself. Thanks, Sonia. Um, there is the bigger issue of cultural norms, right? And I think several people are asking this question because there is the educational aspect and what education can do. But if the cultural norms are not changing or are persisting around particular values, 
what is going to happen? So one of the questions is how do you think um, the cultural norms are, are changing around this? And particularly in relation to, you know, women has, has, have cultural norms around women's situation in India changed? Yeah, so I think that, you know, two things can be done to, to help with the situation. It's, it's very difficult to, to try and understand how you can change a cultural norm. You know, there is, there's no one sort of way to that. But there are two things that might help. Number one is that people who are in a position to influence change, so, you know, politicians are a very good example, need to think about how they talk about women. And I was talking about this with Alpa. You know, a lot of the political discourse in India, which is the discourse that people in villages hear on their radios, which is what discourse that people hear in the cities on, on whether it's on YouTube or on TV, on Twitter, places women in a subordinate position. So, you know, the woman, the man is spoken of in terms of the bread earner. The woman is spoken of as somebody, as somebody who stays at home and cooks for the family. She's a mother, a sister, a daughter, but she's not a person with rights of her own who deserves to be respected and allowed to make her own choices. So number one, the discourse has to change. And then you're going to have a trickle down effect, right? This change always starts um, at the top. The second thing we need to understand is that, you know, policing is lax and it's lax for many reasons. You know, first of all, it's the, the police are not well trained. Um, the police are not encouraged to do their job. The police are not compensated, so on and so forth. There are many reasons for it. But because you're not doing their jobs, people are getting away with, with certain kinds of behaviors that then snowball and become can turn deadly. So, for example, you know, uh, certain kinds of language in public places, um, touching, um, you know, sexual assault in a, in a public bus, for example, um, you know, is is just is just taken for granted. This is what happens, you know, in a public place. Your your women are expected to simply pretend like it didn't happen. And so, if women felt that they could raise their voice, which can only happen if there is good policing. And if the police did their job, there would be a, there would be a sense that, you know, this behavior is unacceptable. So we have to, you can't, you can't force people to change cultural norms, but you can make it clear that it will not be tolerated. There are sufficient laws in place but those laws are constantly being flouted because there are no repercussions. So these are two things that you can do. You can change how we talk about women and you can make sure that, you know, people are, you know, face the law when they break it. If I may, because you're, you're talking, you know, it's, it's very interesting what you're saying about the law and punishment and top down. But what about bottom up changes and what about kind of social, you know, norms changing and, and about how what kind of work do you see that needs to take place you know yeah. not necessarily from top down and punitive measures hmm. so in places like katra sadatganj you know you have uh, and and in uttar pradesh in general and i think this is true in across india you have a lot of grassroots activism 
you know, but in some places, a lot of the grassroots activists who, you know, work uh, to educate people about why they should, for example, send their daughters to school, vaccinate their daughters, give their daughters as much food as their sons, you know, uh, don't push their daughters into marriage as soon as they turn 16, and so on and so forth. They face pushback because they are saying one thing and, you know, all the other louder voices in society are saying something else. So you're absolutely right when you say that, look, it, it, it can't just be top down. But mm-hmm. actually what you're seeing in India is that it's quite the reverse, is that you have a tremendous amount of grassroots activism mm-hmm. um, in an attempt to support people in changing their behaviors, educate them, um, even reward them. So the system is not of punishment. It is of reward. It's of supporting mm-hmm. them in making good choices and changing their habits. And that's certainly proved effective in many places. Mm-hmm. But with a country that this is that is so vast, you mm-hmm. really cannot s- depend so much. It, it's just unfair to depend so much on grassroots activism. Mm-hmm. So we do need a sort of a more cohesive um, approach to the situation, which we don't have at the moment. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Um, there is a question here about, because you were talking about facts and the media reporting and sensationalizing. So one of the questions, um, it's Julia Bicknell asks, where, you know, are there key national regional NGOs which fact gather? Um, so where can you get trusted information? you know, if media or the police are also um, as problematic sources. Yeah. So one of the things we're seeing in India is that while, you know, the, the mainstream media isn't perhaps as reliable as it should be, we are seeing a lot of online media stepping in and doing some tremendous fact-checking and some tremendous investigative work. So a few of the websites that I read regularly, I don't read any of the daily newspapers uh, Mm -hmm. in print, of course I wouldn't, but I don't read them online. I don't read the weekly news magazines that I grew up reading either. What I read are websites like scroll.in, thewire.in, again, doing tremendous work. There is a, 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 a group called Alt News that does that fact checks viral information. A lot of misinformation that's coming out these days comes directly from political parties. It comes from Bollywood celebrities. And then it circulates on social media, circulates on WhatsApp, and it has real life repercussions, including murder. So Alt News fact checks viral information and then lets it out over its app. Um, and hopefully, you know, that that is... Um, a sufficiently corrective measure. But these are some of the places that I would recommend. Sonia, it's always good to know where to look. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a question from Tuido from Simon Fraser University about fear and the function of fear. Um, you know, w- what happens when people become afraid? Um, they cannot be themselves because of fear. So how do you see in this context with, 
you know, these events happening and being publicized, do you see a, a sense of fear growing? Are people monitoring themselves more, the young women? How do you see the function of fear? Well, I think one of the unfortunate outcomes of, of the publicity around the deaths of Padma and Lali was that children, girls in the village um, found that they were given even less freedom than before. Mm-hmm. And um, perhaps that's, that's not the publicity. That was the fact that the children died. But I think the attention made people feel very uncomfortable. And they simply didn't want their girls being out and, um, and drawing attention to themselves. So, you know, rather than saying, well, Padman Lali were only doing what children, children do, they were simply going about their chores, living their lives. There was a sense in Katra that even that small amount of freedom is too much and is likely to attract unwanted attention and terrible consequences. Thank you, Sonia. I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, we've been talking about lots of things. I, I, I wanted to see if you want to respond to anything. Oh, oh, thanks, Amin. Um, no, it's been really interesting listening to these questions. And, and thank you for all our attendees for asking such great questions. I, I've you know, Some of the things I was thinking about, the, the question that Maka Suarez asked about, the relationship between, you know, because what we're calling for here is like, we need to give more autonomy um, to these women, we need to respect their independence, their freedom, we need to nurture all that. But, you know, how do we do that without like, then also completely promoting this idea of agency and individualism, which has come with the rise of neoliberalism, which is, you know, actually creating so many other forms of inequalities mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was really interesting uh, um, um, I, I just wanted to um, uh, you know a lot of the questions have been about what what can what what can we do you know and mm-hmm. I share of course Sonia's like um, significance like the importance you place on education Sonia but then you know I'm also thinking about my God, but, you know, what are children being taught in schools, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How the curriculum has become, is actually the place where so much of this kind of patriarchy and what it means to be a good girl and a good woman and, you know, why do you, uh, uh, you know, that's where it's being reproduced, actually. So education is almost in India like this double-edged sword, you know? You just think, I'm when I'm working on Adivasis, I think, the ones that are getting educated are the ones that are getting much more patriarchal within their own households. You get educated, then you don't want your girls to go out and work in other people's fields. You don't want to get get them to go out and roam the markets as they do on their own. You don't want them to go out to bazaar. So it's just, it's like, it's so, it, it, that education is such a double-edged sword, you know? um, um, But I guess the thing that really I was wondering is, um, uh the, the purpose of the writing right in relation to this question of what is to be done like what did you what do you hope is going to 
what did what did you want to do through the writing like what did you want to beyond telling the story and beyond showing the complexities i'm just thinking about you know the sartre's point about you know i write in order to reveal but it's in the revelation that you then cause a transformation in the reader and then that revelation causes this transformation in the reader which causes them to you know act in a different way or i mean what what in in your did you have where do you go with the story like what do you what you know what do you want to see happen uh what do you want you know what's the because you 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 went out with this you know outrage outrage you were outraged by the rape you wanted to find out about these men and and you you wanted to do something about this so what do you what what has happened in the process of writing this book like what do you want to change what what is the purpose of your writing beyond telling this yeah. incredible astonishing well-crafted beautiful compelling story yeah well you know the thing is that a, a lot of people outside india who are reading this book are saying well i had no idea but the fact is that a lot of indians who read the good girls have had that same response because people who live in cities who live in towns don't really know what everyday life is like for the majority of indians who live in villages mm-hmm. there is a huge disconnect there's a huge difference in the lived experience of these two groups of people and they all supposedly live in the same country but it may as well be completely different countries so it's really important whatever for people to understand you know people who talk about india being modern who talk about india's aspirations as an economic superpower who talk about you know india's place in the world to understand that you know nothing nothing is going to change if at the very bottom of your society people still don't have their basic needs being fulfilled and that's really what it is you know it's it's not about having we we, we are focusing on you know the one the one person who who works at a major tech company in silicon valley we are focusing on you know kamla harris's indian heritage these are the things that we have convinced ourselves are indian but what is equally indian very unfortunately is this gross and persistent inequality and what is also equally indian is a refusal to confront it to pretend as though you know people are poor people are hungry people are suffering in disadvantage because of their own choices because of their own failures that's absolutely not true you know the shakya family works harder than anybody else i know this is not about their actions this is simply about systematic oppression due to caste and class inequalities so we have to understand that the this this tree is not going to flower if the roots are rotten which is what they are so i really want to draw attention to something that is not changing and how you know this this dream of what india can be is not going to be fulfilled because the majority of indians are no closer to it than they were 50 years ago thanks sonia thanks for thanks, sonia yeah Sorry, Amin, over to you. Yeah, we're we're drawing to a close. I think you know what I heard from you. You know, it's it goes back to what I read from your book in the introduction about the human cost of shame, and it just seems you're bringing it back to that point of you know the cost of 
having those that that sensibility and not wanting to address. So um, thank you, Sonia, for raising this and to sharing your work and your deep investigation and your research with all of us. And Alpa, thank you for engaging in a fascinating, illuminating conversation with Sonia. I, I know I found it really enjoyable listening to you both. And um, I think it's just been absolutely wonderful. Sonia, I'll give you um, a last word if you want to say something before I close the event. We've got one, two minutes. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you, Armin. Thank you, Alpa. And uh Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to uh, get this opportunity to talk about The Good Girls uh, with a writer that I admire. Thank you. Wonderful. You Thank go you. Go for... and buy The Good Girls. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Definitely. Um, as I draw this event to a close, I want to thank everyone from the organizers to the panelists to the speakers to Sonia and Alpa, um, to our interpreters, and um, to everyone who asked a question and, and participated in this event, it has been a great pleasure for me and I hope for all of you. Thank you very much. And if you would like to learn more about the International Inequalities Institute, our work and our events, I hope you will follow us on social media and visit the III pages on the LSE website. So good night, everyone, and until we meet again, virtually or otherwise, thank you.